Ben, thanks guys. Hey, welcome. Good morning, Salem. So glad you guys are here. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. And so I just, I add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, Dale, thanks for praying uh, for names. Man, we are a family here where we love God and, and uh, we love each other. So we are glad that you're here. If I've never gotten a chance to meet you, I would love the privilege. Uh, but I also, also don't want to steal you away from Brady. So welcome to Brady and Julia as well. Um, we're super glad that you guys are here. Uh, you guys get to uh, stock your pantry. In the South, we called it a pounding. And uh, when I first heard that, I thought, that sounds so violent. Why would you do that? And it uh, turns out they just bring you pounds of things. So um, we're just going to put you in a sumo suit. And then we'll just, whatever we bring, we get to throw at you. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be way more fun than just dropping off things. So hey, we are super glad that you guys um, are are here. So, um, hey, how many of you guys uh, like, how many of you guys, well, let me ask this. How many of you guys like to sing in the car? Like you, you pump the music loud and you just kind of sing to your heart's content. You do this. Okay, there's, there's people that do this. Uh, that's good. Um, I find that I am one of these people and, uh, and I have uh, sometimes found it awkward when, um, when I am singing at the top of my voice in the radio <laughs> cuts out or my phone pauses and then see the whole time I'm thinking man this is really it's good it's worshipful and then it pauses and then I hear my voice and I go wow <laughs> it sounded so different when the other people were singing <laughs> and uh, and here's what I'm thinking of as I'm thinking about this I'm thinking about the sermon from last week because uh, there's this idea, right, that we have this view of grace. And when, and when true grace, the way that it's designed and the way that God intends it for us, when that is present in our life, that's the way our life sounds. It's great. It's awesome. It's amazing. But you remove the gospel. You remove grace. And what you're left with is this scratchy, off-pitch, you know, like it's just not good. It's not the same, Right? And we're in this series um, called Risking Church. And if you remember the story, we kind of walked through kind of th- this, this four-part story, which ultimately starts with the Trinity and who God is and this eternal relationship with himself, this very intentional community where he is fully known and fully loved amongst himself because he has nothing to hide, right? And so for us, though, as, as sin enters into the world, our tendency, um, our our propensity, our disposition, uh, whatever word you want to use, is that we want to withdraw into the shadows, and we want to, to back away from the light, uh, and in so doing, we cover ourselves, and we hide in all of this shame and guilt and all of the fear that's in our lives. Um, but here's the good news, is that simultaneously, uh, and this is what we're talking about, we're talking about risking church, simultaneously, uh, each of us as individuals, we want to step forward with every being, every piece of our being, we want to step forward into the light and onto the stage uh, in all of our mess because we are made and designed in the image of God. And so because he is that way, that's who we want to be. We want to be in a community where we are fully known and fully loved. That's a, this are, it's one of our deepest, most intimate longings and desires at the end of any any day. And so the way we talked about this is a community uh, of grace. It's a community of grace. And here's, here's the real good news is that in life, in today's world, um, these things exist. 
You can be a part of a community where you're fully known and fully loved. Uh, and that's what we want to build at Salem, this community uh, of grace. But as we looked at last week, a community of grace is only, is only going to work when, when our grace is built on the true gospel. It's not a false gospel. It's not rooted in works. It's not rooted in how much I can do. Uh, it is, is grace alone in which we both are saved and grow into Christ's likeness as we wait for Jesus to ultimately kind of finish the story and his eternal life begins. And so that's where, it's kind of where um, we are at. Like, we want to be able to move into the light um, and we have this true version of the gospel in our, in our hearts and in our minds and, and as we really begin to live it out, we should have full assurance in who God is and what he says about me that in any given moment, I could step into the light and share my brokenness with somebody in this room and I wouldn't have to worry about it because I know that it's, it's, it's not a shameful thing that I'm broken. That's a true thing. And yet, in, in spite of that, like what God does is he brings glory to himself as I become more vulnerable and real and authentic because every single one of us in this room is really just a mess and we just admit it to different degrees. Uh, and so we have this need to come forward with all of our brokenness into a safe environment. But I would argue that there's one final piece. There's lots of pieces. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of them. But here's the, here's the final piece that I want to talk about this morning as we, as we wrap up the first part of this series about where intentional community begins. Okay? And it's in this truth is that intentional community not only is rooted in God, not only is it rooted in community of grace, not only is it rooted in the true gospel, an intentional community of, of grace begins with a very intentional call to imitate other people. And it's a hard thing. This is a challenging thing this morning. There'll be less laughs and, and more kind of ahas. But this is a reality for intentional community. It's something that we need to grasp because in our passage this morning, Jesus is gonna speak some, some very beautiful, in fact, maybe the most beautiful words that he speaks, and yet they are some of the most challenging and convicting and, ch and hard words that he will speak to us uh, in this life. And so if you've got a Bible, I invite you uh, to join. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, okay? So if you know nothing about the Bible and, uh, or you're still learning your books, you just kind of flip through to the right of your Bible, uh, and you'll see maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, is the fourth gospel. They record the lifestyle, uh, the life of Jesus, the life and words of Jesus. And so we're going to be in John chapter uh, 13 uh, this morning, okay? So here we go. By the way, we're entering into, with this chapter, we're entering into this final week of Jesus' life. Okay, so we're going to hear a little bit about the Passover uh, meal, uh, which is, the, is actually the following day. So in our context here, this is probably a Thursday night meal, and the Passover meal would happen on Friday. If you don't know anything about the Passover, you can go online and you can find one of our sermons, I think from April, as we looked at the Passover feast, just the whole thing. So here's what it says. 
It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Lots, lots in there, but just a few things we just we want to pull out. That, that word, uh, hour, uh, if, you're, if you guys, if you want to dig deeper into Scripture, um, here's what I would say. Go look at that hour and, and find where the word hour appears throughout the letter of John. It starts in John chapter 2, and it goes all the way. Jesus starts with, this is, my hour has not yet come. And over and over and over, his hour has not come. And it all leads to this climactic point at the end when all of a sudden Jesus knows that his hour has come. And it's pointing us, uh, it was pointing him and his disciples and really this overall narrative of the story, but us as readers to the idea that Jesus knew that his death was imminent and that this was the end of his ministry, and he's entering into this this final week, and he knows that he's gonna depart, he's gonna leave with some unfinished work. He's going to accomplish the grounds of salvation by his life, his death, and his resurrection, but he knows that there's still way more work to do, and so he needs to know, how do I prep my disciples for once I depart, because he's leaving, and he's going. Remember, uh, Jesus existed uh, in this intentional, eternal, intentional community, you know, within himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when he came to earth, right, what does he do? He builds an intentional community around himself. And now that he's leaving to go back to that other intentional community, he knows he needs to imprint something to his disciples. But I love what it says in the scripture here um, about how about how Jesus loved his disciples. It says that he loved um, his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Uh, part of what's really important for John is that word world, because if you guys have heard the word cosmos, that's the word. What, what John is saying in this moment is he's setting up uh, two, kind of these two distinct people groups. In fact, he uses the word, the word world 40 times in these chapters to help us understand that there are these two distinct people groups. One is the world, and one is Jesus' disciples. And so you have Jesus' disciples who are his own, but you have this whole other group, the subset of people that really is the vast lostness of humanity, just loads and loads of people, everybody else. Because when we think about Christianity, we think about today, we think of the thousands and the millions that are Christians at any given moment, at any point in history. And yet for Jesus, Christianity was really just three years in the making, and so he's got a core group of people, um, the, the smallest subset of which is 12. And that's really what he has. And so he is thinking, how do I give this movement some momentum, right? And so he's talking about these two groups of people. But also says that he's loved them to the end. Now, to loving them to the end could just be that this is the end of his life and this is the end of his ministry. For three years, he's been living with his disciples in and out, day in, brushing teeth, going to bed, like all these things. It's, can you imagine that with people who aren't your spouse? That's a little unique, right? It says, I love them to the end, knowing that for three years, what I've been doing is I've been rubbing away. I've been rubbing away the, the hard, tough pieces in my disciples, and over time, I've been molding them and shaping them like a sandal would be shaped to a person's foot, right? He says, I've been rubbing through, and I've loved them to the end. But it could also just mean that he loved them to the uttermost, which means that, like we think about passages, we think about like, no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
right? And so whatever it is, it's probably some combination of both here uh, for Jesus, right? This is very uh, important. And so if you knew that you were going to leave, if you were leaving and you weren't necessarily coming back, you have a limited amount of time, I just pictured Jesus at the table. This is Thursday night before the high meal of Passover on Friday. So and that's where, right, that's when things really start to get chaotic is after Passover. Okay, so he's like, this is my one night. And I just pictured Jesus looking around the table, which, by the way, um, in that time, the table was different. It wasn't this high table that we sit in these ergonomically correct chairs. Right? It's this low table, and what they would do is that they would lay on the ground, kind of on their hips and legs, uh, with their feet radiating away from the table, um, and they would kind of lean back on one arm, one or the other, and they'd have these mats and pillows underneath of them. Okay? So I just pictured Jesus looking around this first century table, and you see Peter and James, and John, and Philip, and Andrew, and Matthew, and Bartholomew, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. And you look at all these people, and I wonder what memories would come to Jesus' mind. Is he thinking about the healing of Jairus' daughter? Is he thinking about when he's touching everybody's elbows in the crowd and the woman with the hemorrhage reaches out and touches his, his garment? Is he thinking about the woman at the well when all of these disciples happen to come upon and look at Jesus, how he's interacting with the opposite gender, and they're like, wow, this is so weird. What is the memory? Because you know that with each disciple, there are different memories that would have been sparked in Jesus' mind. And he's looking, I just picture him looking around the table remembering these things in this final night before the Passover. And then if, if I were in Jesus' shoes, I think that my, my gaze would fixate, at least for a moment, on one person in particular. And his name is Judas. Because these are people that Jesus has done life with for, for three years, and yet Jesus knows that there are some intimate, secret, nasty details that are going on behind the scenes. Check this out in verse two. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. See, this is, what, this is what's going on in the background, and this is what's happening in Simon's heart, is that he has been conspiring uh, with wicked, evil people to do wicked, evil things that will ultimately lead Jesus to the moment of crucifixion. And this is very painful, which, by the way, if you had a person like that in your life, if you were privileged to that information, like, we, we fall short in the omniscience category quite often, but had you known that, how would you treat that person? How would you treat someone that you knew that was just ultimately going to betray you and the pain and the hurt and the co- Wouldn't we just not include them in our community? Wouldn't we be like, you know what, Judas? Jesus loves you, but I don't. You should go away. You know, is that the way that we treat him? Right? Jesus has done this for three years with these people, and he would fixate, I think, even in this moment at Judas and, what, and what's going to happen in this moment. And so when we think about Jesus, you see, we, in our context, we don't often, although sometimes we do, uh, there are rare moments when we know that our life is coming to an end. And so we have to choose how we spend our final days. 
But most oftentimes that's not the case, or a lot of times that's not the case, and we, don't, we aren't privileged to that information. But if you knew how much time was left for you, what would you do with it? Because that's what Jesus is, is wrestling with in this moment. I was listening to a song yesterday as I was mowing the lawn, and, uh, and I love this song. It's one of my, you know, just kind of all-time favorite albums. Um, and in one of the songs, this is a non-Christian writer, by the way. This is a non-Christian artist. And he sings this. He says, what if the world, what if the world was going to end on Tuesday morning? What would everybody do? This is this philosophical question that he poses in this song. And then he goes on to list like, well, I'd probably eat ice cream every morning, <laughs> right? A lot of people would, you know, if there's no regard for whatever you eat, just eat whatever you love for every meal. Okay? But then he goes in and then he says, but I would also call every single person that I've ever wronged and I would reconcile with them. That's powerful. Very, very powerful from a non-Christian especially. And then after that, what he says is this. He says, now come to think about it, maybe I should always live like the world is going to end. Because we have these moments, and for Jesus, in this moment, what Jesus knows is that he's running out of moments. In this moment, Jesus knows that he's running out of moments. And so if you're Jesus, you have to think, like, what do I do to imprint myself on these people, right? I'm not just going to sit here and just eat a meal, which, by the way, um, when it says in verse 2, it says that during supper, that word during uh, in the Greek, probably more accurately uh, means this, that supper was just ready. It was just served. So the dinner is on the table, okay? Dinner is waiting to be eaten, right? And if you're Jesus, you go, how do I imprint myself in these final moments? So does he pull out scrolls and does he read scrolls and say, look, this is who I am, just as a reminder. This is how I fulfilled all of these prophecies. Does he do that? Does he just explain some lengthy parable? Blah, 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 blah. Here's what I want you to know. Does he pray? Does he sing a song? What does he do? And I, and I just picture Jesus in this moment as he's looking at the table, right? All of this food, like I picture like Thomas, like just bending over the table. Like we've been traveling all day. <sighs> smells so good. Jesus, could, could you get this thing going? Like just initiate this meal because I'm hungry. I'm starving. I'm ready to eat. And so Jesus looks and he sees all of their feet radiating away from the table, And then what he would probably do is look into the corner and he would see that there is a basin that is empty and a jug of water next to it. And he might have been reminded in this moment that it was customary for all Jews when they entered into a home to remove their sandals and then to wash their feet. Because you could bathe your body and be clean everywhere, but once you step out onto the dusty road with your sandals, because that's all they wore, they wear these sandals. And so as soon as the dust mixes with the sweat in your feet, it becomes this nasty mixture. And it's really gross. And just like moms of today's world, we don't want that stuff in the house, right? We keep that out. We want our houses clean, and it's part of the, the keeping the food and all those types of things clean, right? And so he would see this in this moment uh, that their feet are not washed. Now, here's the, here's the deal. Like, when you think about this, um, the, the disciples would have been reluctant, to say the least, to volunteer to, to wash everybody's feet because the washing of feet was reserved for the lowliest 
of people. You see, and, and I say this, and, and just please don't miss this, the lowliest of people. This is the lowest, the lowest, lowest person. It's the slave or the servant in the home that would come upon people's arrival and entry. They'd take off their sandals and they would wash their feet for them so that you didn't have to touch your feet. The lowliest of lows. In fact, many Jews have argued that that, that type of a job was actually too demeaning for a Jewish slave. That's still too demeaning for our people. So you go get a Gentile, you get someone who's not a Jew, and you make them your servant, and then they wash the feet. That's how demeaning this is. It's humiliation. And we don't see that. We don't think about that. We just don't. Now, if Jesus were to enter in, and in this moment, if he were to say, Peter, would you wash my feet? Um, Peter would probably say, yeah, absolutely, because Jesus is the Lord and Savior. He's rabbi. He's best friend. He's all of those things, right? But no way in any context are any of the disciples willing to wash the feet of their peers. No way. Peter, would you wash Thomas's feet? Mm -mm, Nope. It's not how it works. Don't do that. There's no way, in no context, would they do that. And we remember that it's in this moment, right, that the meal has already been served, and they're just waiting for Jesus to initiate this meal. They're just waiting, and Jesus, I just picture him pausing in this moment, and you go, what is Jesus going to do? Jesus, let's just eat the meal. What does he do? Verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, verse four, what does he do? He rose from supper. So he gets up. He gets up. He's no longer reclining. He gets up. It says that he laid aside his outer garments. So he removes his outer cloak and he has his undergarments on underneath. And then what he does is he takes a towel, and he ties it around his waist. And then he grabs the basin and the water, and he fills it, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. This is crazy. So in order to do this, I was really debating on whether or not I should do this, and I'm going to do it. So Jordan, would you... Hop up here, here for me. <clears throat> so I did, just picture Jesus in this moment. This is, the, this is the work of a slave. This is the work of a servant. Jesus takes off his outer garment. He goes and gets this water, which by the way, I think we can presume that if the jug is full of water, that the disciples' feet have not been washed. And so it's not like Jesus is proposing a second washing here. It's not like somebody has already come and gotten all of the gross stuff off and he's just gonna just kind of re-rinse their feet. And so what he does is he takes the water and he pours it into this basin. And then he would grab their feet That's a really tight knot. I'm not going to do that. Which, which, which by the way, like, you ever, you ever, this is just, I mean, this is kind of a new, a new thing, right? When socks were invented, you, ever, you come home and you have shoes on and you pull off the sock and you just know that your foot is just ripe. 
You ever feel that? You do. Okay. I didn't mean for that to be funny. I just meant for, for it to be serious, right? So, like, because Jesus would come, and he, he brings this foot over, and what he would do is he'd just take water, and then he would just drip it over the top, right? But, but just dripping doesn't do the work that it needs to because his feet are dirty. And so you start just to, just to rub, and, you, and you, you feel all of the calluses, you feel the tough skins, you, you feel the grime, and all of that is coming in. And, and I think, you know, like when you're little, and grandma would always say, you know, make sure you wash behind your ears, right? Like behind the ears are easy compared to the toes, right? Like getting in between these toes, like there's just so many things that get caught here and in our, in our nails and all that stuff. And so you begin to do this, and then it's with this towel that he has wrapped around his waist is that he would begin to then dry off these feet. And here's what's strange about this, is Jesus makes his way around the table. Jesus makes his way around the table. Uh, This goes from beyond, it goes from gross, it goes from gross to something totally different. You see, when we think of this, we go, man, that's just icky. There's something shameful about touching another person's feet and wiping them and getting all that grime out of there. It really is. And it oftentimes makes other people, the people who are being washed, very shameful, right? And so we think of humility, but this is humility in its form of humiliation, Because it's washing, it's gross. And it moves from gross to something that's totally unnatural. Because this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And Jesus totally flips. He flips these rolls upside down. Here you go, thanks. He flips these rolls upside down in doing this. And I guarantee you that in this moment that that nobody is thinking about the meal. Even though all of them are hungry, Thomas's stomach is still gurgling and he's hungry, but nobody's thinking about the meal because everybody's eyes are right on Jesus or they're stuck on the floor because this is totally unnatural. It's totally unnatural. And it leaves the disciples reeling. In fact, Peter, later on, he says, like, Jesus, like, Lord, would you wash my feet? And she's like, yes. In fact, I have to. This is the way that it's supposed to be. There has to be a washing. And Peter's response is classic Peter. I mean, come on, Peter. Like, how many times? He says, no. You will never wash my feet. And there's this pride and arrogance in Peter. And there's two things that are happening in this moment. It's that Jesus is pointing them ultimately to the greater reality of the cross. He's saying this is far bigger than that because what I'm going to do on the cross has nothing to really do with feet. Like feet are gross, but it's your heart and the grossness of your heart that's the problem. And there has to be a washing. And if there isn't a washing of the heart, then you have no, you have no connection to me. You have no relationship to me. So that's the first thing. But the second thing that's happening in this moment is that he's giving them an example to follow. And it makes us think of like, when just says like the first shall be, Last, and the last shall be first. Whoever wants to become great must become least, right? All of a sudden, these other lines start to flow to the top. And that's what Jesus is doing. And if we were just to pause for a second in this moment and say, oh, that we had this kind of humility. Oh, that we had this kind 
of humility. Check out in verse, in verse 12. Because as the, as the disciples are watching all of this unfold, here's how, here's how it continues. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them. Okay, so he, he washes everybody's feet, including Judas, by the way, who is the one person he knew would betray him. He finishes it, he washes all their feet, he resumes his place, and he says, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand? Conceptually, in your brain, think about this. Are you, are you cognitively, are you processing this? Because here's where he goes. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. You are right, for so I am. And so he's making the connection between teaching and understanding. Like, I'm a teacher. You know that. I'm a teacher. Are you understand what I'm teaching you? Okay? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's in my head. It's in my head. It's in my head. Here's what he says, though. It's not okay for it to stay here. Verse 14. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Not like, not similarly, but just as I have done to you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying in this moment? You see, this is a, he says, I'm an example, and here's what Jesus says, I'm calling you to take what's here and to make sure that it comes out here. Because it's not just about right beliefs. You need right beliefs, but it's also about right action. And what Jesus is saying is, I've taught you, taught you, taught you, taught you. I'm imprinting you, imprinting you, imprinting you, and here's the way that I want you to live. This is the way of life that I am passing down. I'm leaving to go be with the Father. And when I leave, I don't want you just to know what's right. I want you to live what is right. Do just as I have done for you. Check out verse 33. He knows that he's leaving. He knows that he's going to the Father. And he says, little children, yet a little while while I'm with you. Right? My time is running out. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, now also I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, uh, just, just pause for a second before we get into this next piece, right? Because he's leaving his disciples. He knows that in a few moments' time, right, in less than a week, he's going to have accomplished the salvation, the work necessary for the salvation of all people. But once he's done with that work, where is he going? To the Father, which means that there's still more work to be accomplished. And so these two groups of people enter back into the story because Jesus says, by the way, you are my own, but there's this whole other world of lost people who are not yet my own. And so what he's doing and saying, imitate me, follow my example, live this way, he's saying, he's saying, um, I want you to take what you learned here and I want you to put it into the world. I want you to, to, to no longer be disciples. I want you to be disciple makers. 
disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who teach, who not only teach, but also live out the gospel. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to spend his next chapters uh, assuring them of the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to do this work inside of him because it's always grace and it's always the power of the Holy Spirit, not us. Right, that are causing us to grow into Christ-likeness. But before he ever gets to that, he gives them potentially the simplest, most clearest, and difficult command he's ever given. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Check this out in verse 35. It says, uh, excuse me, not, not verse 35, 34. It says, a new commandment I give to you. Okay? He's instituting here something for this new community, your intentional community. This is what I'm instituting for your intentional community when I'm gone. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And, and, he's, and, and what if he stopped there? Could you see Peter being, you know, leaning over to Thomas and being like, hey, you know what, Thomas? Um, you asked me to pick up your kids tomorrow. I'll, I'll do that on my way home from, from school or from work. I can do that. Or maybe it's like Andrew, you know, hey, Andrew, I knew you ran out of uh, sugar last week and I said no, but guess what? I'll give you sugar next time you ask, right? These are all good things, but that's not what Jesus is saying. It's far deeper and far greater than that. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. Not similarly, not like, not close to, but just as what have I imprinted? What's the lifestyle that I've given you? What have I shown you to do? I'm passing along a way of life. For three years, I've been imprinting this in you, imprinting, 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 and when I'm gone, this will be you and not me. This imitation, this life of imitation. And here's what he says in verse 16. Um, excuse me, not in 16. Um, Yep, 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 I totally just lost my, yeah, actually, that's okay, go back to 16. Um, I just totally lost my, my train of thought. Uh, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his mas master, uh, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Why does he feel the need to do this? Why does he feel uh, the need uh, to do this? Because when Jesus steps down on this, when he gets down on his knees, what we sometimes forget is, is we think about servant leadership and we go, we're okay with the idea of servant leadership. But what we're not okay with, with is the idea of being a slave. You see, when we look at Jesus do this, we don't think about it in the context of washing feet. We just think about it in the idea of serving others. And this is how Jesus says, I want you to do this. I want you to serve others. And so for us in this moment, he says, if I am the master and choosing to be the slave, guess what? What does that say for you? What does that say for you? If I'm the master and I'm choosing to be the slave, what does that say for you? That's so tremendously important. And see, I think so, so oftentimes for us in this life, we are okay with the idea of servant leadership, but as soon as we are treated like a servant, we're out. As soon as we're treated like a slave, we are out. When Jesus says, man, I want you to love one another, he's pointing them to the cross. He's saying, this is the big picture. The big picture is the cross. And, and by the way, the disciples don't even understand that. If they knew what Jesus was talking about and it's the biggest picture, it would melt their brains. 
because that's way too hard and way too big for them. But specifically, he's referencing this idea of washing each other's feet. And I could see Peter leaning over to Jesus saying, Jesus, do you know, this is really gross, do you know how gross Thomas's feet are? And Jesus would be like, yeah, Peter, I do. And by the way, Peter, we're not talking about feet. We're talking about hearts. We're talking about the grossness and the mess and the difficulties of the human heart. Why is this so hard? Let's go back to the beginning of the story for a second. I want you to see what Jesus has done with this group of people. In Mark chapter three, if you have your Bible, you can look back at this in Mark uh, chapter three. Here's what it says in verse 13. This is a time when Jesus' ministry is growing and building and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, So it's at the very beginning. So this is when he calls the disciples to himself. It says, he went up on a mountain and he called to himself those whom he desired and they came to him. Guys, this is so radically different because in their time, in Jesus' time, Jewish rabbis, were, they were known for whatever their teaching was and people would flock to the rabbis and they would pick their own rabbi based on who they wanted to follow. And Jesus reverses it, no surprise. He goes out and he picks people. But here's what's crazy. The creator of the universe went to pick people. You think, man, he knows exactly who the best people are. Who are the best people to pick? So who does he pick? Verse 16, he appointed the 12, Simon and Peter, excuse me, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is, the, this is the group of people that Jesus chose. This is who Jesus has to work with uh, for three years. And when he finally gets to the point in John 13, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So if we look at this first portion, I want us to understand how this community began because it's so helpful for John 13. I'm going to give you five things that I think are, are things that are so often overlooked in Christian community, and they're taken from Mark 3. Okay, here's the first one. This is a no-brainer. Christian community is Christ-centered. And sometimes the no-brainers are the hardest because it makes you think about it. You see, Jesus inserted himself into a group, and, and the center of that group was not one of the disciples, is not anybody else, it was Jesus. And that's what we have to say about Salem. The center of our Christian community is who? Christ, is nothing else. Nothing else is the center of our Christian community but Christ. Here's the second thing about Christian community. Christian community is based on camaraderie, not chemistry. You see, sometimes I think when we think of community, we think about gathering everybody around us that's like-minded. Well, they like to sing the way I do. I like to dress this way. I like to do this a certain way. And so we gather and we create these groups of chemistry. But guess what? The people that Jesus pulled together into this group in their natural contexts would have um, hated each other. They would not have gotten along because you've got Simon the tax collector who is sympathetic to Rome. He just takes everybody's money. That's a Roman thing. And then you've got Simon the zealot, right? And Simon the zealot wants nothing to do with Rome. You think there's some conflict there? 
Do you think there's some conflict with poor fishermen? Right? These people in their natural context would have not gotten along. But because Christ is the center of their group, it isn't about chemistry. It's about camaraderie around the person, the works, and the mission of Jesus. That's Christian community. Here's the third thing. Christian community is a means, not an end. You see, sometimes I think we, we also do this, and, and I, I'm so known for this, right? Like, I want to gather people around me, and then once I feel safe, I go, this is the end. I just, and I just want to enjoy the community. And what Jesus reminds us is that we are blessed to be a blessing, right? Like, even in this, even in this Mark 3, he says, I called the 12 to himself so that they would be with him and so that he might send them out. Right? So he's creating this intentional community to bless the world. So there's this internal peace, but there's also this external peace as well. And this is how, like even the Gospel of Matthew ends, right? Matthew 28, what does Jesus do? Go and make disciples, right? It's a, it's a, it's a means, not an end. Number four, a Christian community is a commitment to one another. It's not driven about what's for me, what's in this for me. When you look at all the one another's in scripture, you've got love one another, um, outdo one another in showing love, live in harmony with one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, and it goes on and on and on. Christian community isn't about what's in this for me. It's about how can I serve and be committed to the, the, the one anothering. And the last one, number five, is consistent. And I think this is hard in today's world because Christian community, I think if we we're to be honest, oftentimes falls somewhat near the, the bottom end of our priority list, sometimes. And Jesus spent day in and day out with his disciples over and over and over. There's a consistency that's needed to rub through and to, to have Jesus imprinted into our lives. And so if we come back, if we know these things about Christian community, we come back, we know how hard it was for Jesus to take a group of people who would have naturally had difficult relationships. And you fast forward back to chapter 13 of John in verse 35, and what does he say? He, he brings back in these two people groups. You have the disciples who are his own and the world, and he says, get this, by this, he's talking about love, by this, all people, the whole world, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A group of people who don't always get along and don't always have chemistry, but have Jesus at the very center by this, this foot washing, this humility, this servant-like attitude, this love for each other, this is the way that the world is gonna know that we are his disciples. And so there's this intentional invitation from Jesus to imitate himself, and he wants that lifestyle lived out in the world. I don't wanna give you this last this last 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. This is Paul. Later on in, in ministry, he says this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And sometimes we read these things and we go, wow, that is bold and arrogant. And it's really not. If you understand it, it's very, very humble. 
because we will not always do this right and we will not always do it perfectly, but this is the pattern in which Jesus has laid out for us because we are hardwired to imitate. <laughs> when I think about whenever, I, like even just recently, I heard Eden say something, I was like, oh, please don't say that in public. That's totally me. <laughs> you just repeated something that daddy says and that's I'm not okay with that, <laughs> right? Like we know that we are hardwired to imitate and we know that salvation and growth in Jesus are both rooted in grace. It is an act of grace that we grow into Christ-likeness. But here's my question. What if, and just sit on this, what if modeling and copying people are the most intrinsically powerful components of spiritual growth? Finding people in life who model and love and model Jesus more than I do and copying and imitating them. And what if that wasn't just reserved for pastors? What if it was something that we all embraced? Every single one of us at every level, we embraced this idea of copying as the best practice for Christian growth. You may remember at the very beginning of this series, I said one thing about church, and I don't know if you remember this, but here's what I said. It's my prayer and hope that what's most important about Salem is the life that we do together with people. Because if we understand this correctly, that can be true. That Christian, intentional Christian community actually begins with disciple making and a healthy church provides the context for people to imitate and copy the lifestyle of Jesus through other people. I wanna invite the, the worship team to come up, but as they do, I, I say this very humbly. And I don't mean this arrogantly at all because I will never follow Jesus perfectly. In fact, I'm following Jesus perfect, un, like, like less perfectly than some of you. But in this position, I have the opportunity to put myself out there and say, if you want to follow Jesus, watch me. Because I'll show you. And there are people in my life that I'm looking to to say, I'm watching you. And so here's my hope, is that we, we build this culture of imitation, but that it begins with Christ, and it's working its way through our congregation. And you, if you're around me enough, you will hear me say this, who is your hand up to? So who is helping you follow Jesus? And who is your hand down to? Because who are you helping? And that's how we become an intentional Christian community. Let me give you these questions, and then we'll pray. First one is this, cave. Can I, can I encourage you this week to spend some time this week in John 13 and just find awe. Just be amazed at the humility of Jesus because we hear the word humility and humiliation and those to us are very different things and yet that's what Jesus did by being a person who washed the disciples' feet. The table. Um, would you just, just find some people at a table and would you just discuss those five overlooked truths of Christian community from Mark 3? My guess is that you'll be pretty, uh, pretty inspired by some of that conversation. It's challenging. It's rich and very challenging. And the road is this last one. Uh, just as a reminder, we, this is, we all need to remember that we are blessed to be a blessing, right? That we would be with Jesus, that we would also be sent by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up our time this morning, I picture Jesus on his knees, 
washing the disciples' feet. And I can almost sense the shock and horror on the disciples' faces as they watched him do this, as he reversed the roles. It says, a servant is not greater than his master. But for him, as the master choosing to be the slave, if that's true, then what does that say for us? Lord, would you inspire that kind of humility in us? That at Salem, as a body of people, that we would be a people who wash each other's feet, who get into the nitty gritty and get into the grossness and we remind each other of the grace that is so wonderfully evident and powerful in the cross. And that even when my voice doesn't match the tune, it's the gospel and that song, the beauty and the wonder of the grace that Jesus sings over us that overwhelms us. So Lord, would you inspire in us a group of people who are willing with boldness and courage, but with all humility to stand up and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Amen.